Uh, hello, welcome to this week's edition of Juicing the Big Screen, uh, your movies reviews podcast. Uh, I am one of your critics, Joshua Tracing. And I'm Corwin Heller. You said that confidently this week. You knew it was Juicing the Big Screen. I did. I did not get that wrong. I were was hoping. Uh, were you practicing during our break? Uh, yes, yes. I looked myself in the mirror and had a real heart to heart with myself. Um, oh yeah, we're talking about the uh, the recently released Netflix film Trial of Chicago Seven and the 1968 Stanley Kubrick classic 2001: A Space Odyssey on the show tonight. Two heavy hitters in terms of what we have to discuss here. Corwin, where would you like to get started? Uh, let's start with 2001 because I feel like it will be less heavy of a discussion. Fair enough. Um, all right. 1968's 2001 A Space Odyssey um, was written and directed by Stanley Kubrick. It was also co-written by Arthur C. Clarke. Um, Arthur C. Clarke, the famous science fiction writer, helped Stanley Kubrick write the screenplay for this. And then Stanley Kubrick helped Arthur C. Clarke write the book for this. Um, and then Arthur C. Clarke turned this into a series. Fun facts. Um, it stars nobody significant. Keir Dulia, Gary Lockwood, and William Slyvester. Nope, Sylvester. I read that backwards because it sounded wrong. Um, anyway, um, it, it had an estimated budget of $12 million. A cumulative worldwide gross of $65 million. Now, that makes it a success. Its tagline was, um, the time is now. Sure, that works. Um, it was nominated, it won one Oscar on the back of four nominations. Uh, Stanley Kubrick won for Best Effects Visual Special Effects. It was also nominated for Best Director for Stanley Kubrick, Best Writing Screenplay Story and screenplay written directly for the screen for Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke. And best art direction, set direction for Anthony Masters and Harry Lang. Um, oh, and Ernest Archer. Uh, it is about, um, after discovering a mysterious artifact buried beneath the lunar surface, mankind sets off on a quest to find its origins with the help from intelligent supercomputer HAL 9000. Um, this was my pick, so I guess I will start. So this is a this is a classic amongst classics. This is a Stanley Kubrick film, which means if you um, aren't watching this because it's a classic film, you're watching this because this is written and directed by a classic writer director, um, and it is visually stunning for 1968. And still today, a lot of these shots are still fucking gorgeous. Um, in particular, the beginning scenes where we're looking at, um, you know, barren wasteland in like a desert. And then when we're at the end and we're having that visual feast with all just the colors and the waves and whatnot. Um, it is a movie that is relatively straightforward in what's happening, but really lives and breathes in the meaning metaphor and understanding of these consequences or significance um, of the plot devices. So it makes it a really easy movie for you to know nothing about and not think too hard about and just kind of watch people wander through space. Um, but it also has a lot of 
subtext and and uh, deeper meaning that goes on throughout it, which will be probably most of the focus of the conversation, I would guess, um, for today. So it 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 it's two and a half hours, and it it lags at some parts because it it is a slow burn of a film. But I think it really because the effects that it uses are so interesting to look at. Even today, like this did not age poorly. Um, it doesn't really hold anything against it. It's two and a half hours and it feels like two and a half hours, but it doesn't feel like more than two and a half hours, which I think is usually where pacing becomes an issue in longer movies, if it feels really long. Um, I'm really excited to talk about this. This is one of my favorite Kubrick films. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just a fan, man. Uh, I do have to admit, I think this feels longer than two and a half hours. Um, you know, I think it is definitely visually stunning. I think it's one of the, uh, you know, if not the best visual film from this era, that decade, or anything that came before it. I just think it, it's near perfect when you get down to, you know, some of the, the composition of the shots. And, and there are some shots in this that, like, you... You watch, you look at, and you are just, your jaw is agape because of how beautiful it is. Um, especially, you know, being 1968, it's not what you would expect compared to, you know, the modern photography and techniques and different ways they can get these perfect clarity shots in 4K, but it's still there and it's still just as good. Uh, that being said, narratively i thought this was a slog to get through um i just felt like while i didn't completely hate that so much of this film was just you watching events unfold and watching things happen and just being able to take away from it i just felt like there was not enough there backing it up to really keep me entertained for two and a half hours i mean you know, there are slow parts for sure, but there's never really a significant section of this film where you are on the edge of your seat, where you're extremely, con- I don't want to say concerned, but there's there's no point in this really where I felt there was enough going on to justify how long these scenes and how long this is being dragged out i mean in the first 60 minutes of the film you learn essentially three things three things that you learn in the first 60 minutes Uh, you basically learn that there's a mysterious tablet which we first see you learn there's an epidemic going on at a nearby space station and you learn that the space station itself is a cover-up. That's the first 60 minutes. Um, granted, there's more details that come about off of all of this throughout the film. Um, but I feel like getting someone into this film is, you know, it relies on, hey, look at all this cool futuristic tech and how futuristic this all looks. Because in, in 1968, we hadn't put a man on the moon, you know, and these are moon lunar stations. There's video conference calls. There's, you know, all this cool technology that would be so foreign in 1968, yet is 
they almost take that just doesn't hold up and the foundation of, of what this film relies on to some extent doesn't stand that test of time. Um, you know, like the, the one scene with the Dr. Harper, the first, uh, the first doctor that goes to the space station meets with the other group, yada, yada, yada. Um, I'm, I'm too bad with names to know. Yeah, ex- exactly. It's, it's too difficult, especially when it, it's not something that's commonly said throughout. Anyway, he calls his daughter back on Earth. And it's it's watching this guy talk to his daughter, who is, as you would expect, a young child who is squirming around in her seat and just difficult to to sit in place. This that, and it's just like, man, like this is like trying to talk to a seven year old today, but with the bad quality of of telephone, you know, communication of nineteen sixty eight and and none of the perks out of that one scene in particular. I don't know why, just like ground my gears. I just couldn't over how, like, oh, this is just so annoying to watch, even though I'm sure this was crazy to see in 1968. But regardless, I just don't know if this stands the test of time. Anything outside of the, the, the visual composition and, and, and some of the really beautiful shots that he puts together. Uh, it took me I, six minutes to realize I was watching a French version of this film. <laughs> I mean, well, that's just fucking hilarious, first of all. <laughs> um, I will admit that whole sequence where you're looking at that one doctor dude, like, get to the transit airport type gut thing and talk with the people. In my mind, it's always like a, like a quick four or five minute scene. And in reality, it's like 10 minutes and it's way too long. And- I don't care. It's so... It's So 26 minutes is when um, he first speaks to the receptionist and hours when they complete their conversation at the that, that conference room where he's talking with the people back from his place. So that one scene where he's first going to that airport place that we talked about and this follow-up scene where He's then talking to the people from, I guess, his space station is 35 minutes. It's long. Wow. So I'm trying to think about how I want to approach the conversation. I guess we'll start with the length of of some of these shots since we're kind of on that subject. Um, Can we follow up by talking to the girth of shots? Yes, yeah, that was going to be the next point I brought up. Um, they are girthy sequences. I I think there's a couple different reasons that so much of each scene is really sat in. I think part of it is that they are really well composed. No matter, even the boring scenes where like they're talking in those pink chairs, mm-hmm. I, like fuck those pink chairs. But at the same time, like it's visually interesting. Um, and so I think part of it is, is you know, Kubrick really want, wanting you to sit in that and be engaged with that. But I think another big part of it is we look at this movie today through the 2020 eyes um, as two dudes that have seen a lot of this movie. You know, mm-hmm. we've we've seen future world movies. Um, 
this really was the first big one. There was movies that took place in space before this, and there's movies that featured, you know, some concept of like extraterrestrial life or space travel or whatever in it. But this is the first one where it really wanted you to like live in the concept of future and presented it in such a nuanced way. You know, it wasn't just like space beams that go pop, pop and pow, pow, like you got in Star Trek. This was like, no, I'm going to like call my daughter. Like this is a normal part of life. and She's not going to think it's weird. Here's a five-year-old that knows how to work the space phone um, because it's part of normal life. And that I think is a part of the reason it's in that is that for one, it's visually interesting for another thing to show that it's commonplace. And then for a third thing, because it's really the first time we've gotten this, you know, like Star Wars, which ripped off several shots from this movie, basically directly, um, didn't come out for another ten years after this, pretty much. Um, nine years. Um, yeah, it came out in like seventy-seven. Um, but you know, this is really a whole, a whole new fucking world in how cinema was really done. Um, and I think the shots, by and large, still hold up really well. I think a lot of the you know, buttons and, and, you know, like battle stations, so to speak, where, you know, where, where people sit in like captain's chairs and shit still looks pretty sixties. Um, and stuff like that, you know, that space phone, the fact it charges you and yada, yada feels relatively sixties, but by and large, I think it looks pretty convincing. Um, when, when you, we look at movies that take place over long stretches of time in space, you know, with like hyperbaric chambers or whatever, this, it still basically looks like this. Um, so I'm, yeah, I'm not mad at it. Um, yeah, uh, one of those things where I can't be upset at it because at the end of the day, this is the first ever really do it. And this started a genre of film and that is just so groundbreaking in its own right. I don't want us like at no point would I ever say that this is a bad movie or this is not a movie I would recommend because of how groundbreaking and monumental this was for all of film and its history but you you know watching this and understanding okay this came out in 1968 sure this is great for 1968 but having not lived in the era have not seen this before i can only judge it based off of my current viewpoint which is watching this in 2020 you know 52 years later and that's kind of how i i have to to review every one of these movies that we do because I can't pretend to know what it was like, you know, in 1968 watching a movie for the first time and seeing all this happen because I was never there. So right. I don't want to put that against this in any capacity. I got you. Um, so what do you say we take this plot wise and then loop back afterwards to talk about meaning? Um, all right. So general overview of what happens in this movie, the first like half an hour is monkeys. Um, (laughs) and then after the monkeys go away, um, which was just so funny because I was watching this with, uh, Matt and Cal and they were like, are the monkeys on the moon? How do we get to the moon? Um, which was just a hilarious thought. Monkeys on the moon. (laughs) Stupid. We're going to space. Um, anyway. Guy goes to the moon, there's a moon base, there's a monolith, the monolith from the beginning, then we cut to a different space uh, craft 
that is hurtling through space. Um, you see dudes keeping fit, pushing buttons, playing chess with a computer, maintaining a spacecraft. They think there's an issue with their onboard artificial intelligence, HAL 9000. HAL 9000 then goes haywire and starts killing them. Um, and as, as one does, um, they, one of the guys survives, manages to kill HAL, or I guess take away the artificial intelligence part of HAL and just make him into a computer. Uh, he then finds out that, that they found the monolith 18 months ago on um, the moon and that it was sending radio signals to Jupiter. So this mission was to go to Jupiter. He then gets to Jupiter where there is another monolith like in space over Jupiter. And then it be uh, begins the very surrealist part of the film um, where time becomes a flat circle um, and um, and there's a space baby. So <laughs> did I miss anything? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> I just lo just love saying space baby. Um, yeah, no. it's a space baby. That's what it is. It's it's space baby. So that that's the plot. Um, in a nutshell. So I I guess let's you know how we have kind of a scope of of, uh, of how things go again to a very loose extent. Let's let's talk about meaning. What do you think? the point of the movie is what is what question um that's really tough uh, I, maybe it's humans reliance on technology to push themselves forward has led to a point where they are now completely reliant and it will force them to you know, the humanity is coming a crutch and will inevitably lead to them dying off and forced to, to start evolution over, essentially. Um, that was my takeaway. I, I, honestly, with this film, I would be open to almost all interpretations. All right, then let me ask you a follow-up question. What is the monolith? Josh. Did you hear me? I did not. All right. I said, uh, I got a follow-up question for you. What okay. is what is the monolith? Hmm. Hmm. I was not expecting this follow-up question. Um, and I, I... I don't know. I don't know. Like, I, I don't even know where to begin guessing. At, at the end of the film, when I was done, there was really it was that even supposed to be, and I I could begin to question it. I don't know. I really feel bad for not knowing, but I don't know. All right, so let me. Let, let, let's walk our way through this. The monolith appears at very... I need it. What, what'd you say? So hold my hands while we walk through this, because I need it. Both of them. I'll hold both of your hands as we walk through this. Staring at each other the whole way. Um, mm. 
So the monolith appears at very particular points in the film for a reason. It appears in the beginning sequence with the monkeys, and then right after the monkeys meet the monolith, the group of monkeys that were introduced to the monolith then start using bones as weapons. They, or another way of putting that is they start using tools. That is considered the first evolutionary step that eventually separate ma- major evolutionary event that separates um, monkeys that would go on to become humans to monkeys that just go went off fucked off and stayed monkeys, mm-hmm. right? So that is considered an evolutionary step right there. The next time we see it is when we get to the moon, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. And that and we had are at a point in time in the scheme in the grand scheme of the film where we have the ability to get to the moon. We have become evolved enough and smart enough to get ourselves to the moon and have the technology capable to understand that this monolith is by some means communicating with somewhere out in Jupiter. So we have a much greater understanding of what is happening around us and a greater intelligence than we did previously. The third time we meet the the monolith is hanging over Jupiter, when it somehow manages to kind of absorb Dave, the astronaut. And then we get the time is the flat circle scene, where where Dave starts seeing progressively older versions of himself. You see the monolith for the last time, and it consumes Dave and makes him into Space Baby. And the way Space Baby Dave, and then sends him back to Earth. And that, I would say, is again an introduction or, or a concept about evolution. That, to some extent, evolution is being brought about by these things. That they are the arbiters of progress, of, of human evolution, to the point that Man was the next step up from monkeys, and whatever Space Baby Dave became was our next step up beyond man. Because if we came from monkeys, what's next? You know? Space Baby. What, whatever Space Baby Dave grows up to eventually be, um, that is the concept of it being our next evolutionary step. Okay. All right. So... Um... There's a couple ways to read that, and you could say, you know, it depends on how theological you want to get about it versus science science fiction, because you could say that those monoliths are, you know, some physical form of, like, a deity. You know, some godlike figure is placing monoliths strategically in both time and space in order to help move evolution along in some meaningful path you could say that there's you could say that they're their own race you know when um when the guy on the tv after they killed hal uh, was talking he said that that they had met extraterrestrial life they didn't just say we, we found a black box that was sending radio waves he said extraterrestrial life so you could then say that like you know at some point evolution gets to a, a level where we no longer need bodies where now we can now manifest ourselves in the form of black fucking boxes you know mm-hmm. it depends on how you want to read what that box is and i don't think there is 
too much in the way of right or wrong there. But I think the def the definite through line with it is that that is part of the engine of evolution. Okay, I I definitely missed the importance of when the monolith like when it showed its face when it appeared uh, because to me it seemed random. I didn't associate those steps in evolution that we see with the rest of what was going on. And I, I think that's part of how we often think about like the legacy of this movie. And I think the legacy of this movie is very much so the HAL sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a very famous part. And like we see like, you know, the ship's artificial intelligence is killing us trope like in a lot of places. Um, even mm-hmm. though that's not really a central part of the movie at all. Yeah. Um, like, I, I fully went into this expecting this to be a, a space station because that's everything I had seen go to it. Yeah, and it's on, like, a lot of the famous posters are I, of I that. Was I thought that's what this movie was. It wasn't until, you know, obviously watching it that you see, oh, no, it is... Uh, you know, now a human evolution. I thought it was just a human evolution story, you know, about this, not necessarily the forced evolution of humanity. But again, that is interpretation. Yeah, it, yeah, the, the, there's definitely, you know, room to get into the, the weeds of it. Um, as there, I, because that was that's one of the great things. I forget if we talked about this just you and I as people, or if we talked about it on the podcast. But that was that's one of the the things about early sci-fi that's really fun is that early sci-fi was a lot less about like, wow, look at all that wacky technology, and it was it was a lot more a vehicle to discuss like philosophy or how man interacts with nature with a new element that is technology. You know, you look at. Um, the Philip K. Dick book, um, "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep," that eventually got made into Blade Runner. That was that that was about um, yes or no. Um, but that you know that was a question about what it means to be man. You know, like this is a question about how does evolution take shape? Like how how does how do how do we progress as as a race? You know, as a human race. Um, and, and you know, Star Trek was was very much so in that vein as well, where as the frequent, the, the recent movies are a lot more about like, let's shoot up those bad guys with our space pistols. Um, but it was a lot more about just like, you know, how do we look at uh, our place in the world and look at it through different lenses of, of different planets and uh, races and um, systems and whatnot. Um, anyway. So, yeah, I, you know, you, 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 so the beginning part with the monkeys, you know, that's really to show that first evolutionary step. Then the whole last half hour with the, the, the trippy visuals, that is, you know, like, again, I say is, and when I say is, it's just a more quicker and convenient way than me saying in my interpretation. So don't take it literally. I can, I'm allowed to be wrong. You can, you can disagree with me. I'm not going to be mad. No. Um, you know, that is like Dave going into that monolith. And then when he's in that room where he progressively sees older versions of himself, there's a lot, I think, of room to kind of make up your own mind about what happens that with that, like what that's all about. 
Um, you know, to me, I, I've always, in my original reading of it, and I've seen other other people have other takes on it, which I I don't disagree with any of them, but the way I originally looked at it was, Dave got, you know, sent back. He somehow found his way back home, but because he went through that journey, he no longer experiences time the same way, which is why he keeps seeing himself, you know, progressively older and older and older. And because he's tied to the monolith, when he's, you know, old and in his bed and like seemingly in his deathbed, the monolith mm-hmm. comes back and re, re a, a, appears in his room to take him to be its vessel towards the the next evolutionary step. Um, that's how I read that whole back half. Okay. Or I guess back uh, final it was half. Definite, it was definitely not something I enjoyed as a part of that movie. Solely because I really did not feel like it was adding anything to the experience. And it really was just what is this? What am I watching? Why am I watching this? And oh yeah, you're along for the ride there, man. Yep, and it's just like, uh, like I know this is going to lead to something important, and I need to watch it, but I don't want to. I, I, I got you. Um, all right, I, I have one last kind of big question for you here. Sure. Um, why? was the Hal scene in the movie. The whole house, because on its surface, the, the discussions we've just had surrounding evolution and the, the plot of the film, linearly speaking, doesn't require there to be that whole Hal sequence um, where he you know tries to take over the ship. It very much so could have just been Dave gets to Jupiter, everyone else is asleep, and he goes out to explore the monolith, and then the end happens the exact same way it would have anyway. Um, why Why was Hal in the movie? Again, I think it comes down to the technology being considered a crutch for evolution. People and humans cannot evolve to have higher control, higher abilities when technology is doing that for them. So that would be my answer there. Um, but I, I can't say that it would be anywhere close. All right. I have another question for you. Yeah. Why did Hal start killing everybody? Um, because humans are a danger to his own survival, the same way, you know, humans use how to continue their survival. Um, all right, all right, no, we're, we're on to something here. Okay, why, right, why I'm, are I'm you... saying we're on to something because you're, like, the teacher man who's like, all right, all right, you're getting close, you're figuring it out, or, like, we are discussing this and blah, 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 blah. A little, a little bit of both. Um, okay, I'll take it. Why does Hal feel as though the humans are a threat to his survival? Um, because it's explicitly stated that they don't trust him 
and they are going to terminate his connection. And he sees that. He can read their lips. He knows that his life is now currently in danger because of it. His quote-unquote life, what he views his own life. Um, so he's going to go out of his way to, to stop that from occurring. And why do they not trust him? Because we humans innately do not trust technology. That's um, you know, not something that we can comprehend the processes of and is inherently smarter than we are. It's even more basic than that. Hal was wrong about the life expectancy of that futuristic-looking TV satellite dish thing. Uh. And he was embarrassed. Yeah, that's it. Seriously, I mean, think about it. Uh, there, there, there is the self-preservation aspect because they said, like, look, we can, if Hal's wrong about this, we can just deactivate part of it because this is a really, you know, there's a lot going on here, so we can just turn off the artificial intelligence part of him and have him just be a computer, yada, yada, yada. So there's that part of it. But all that's coming about because Hal was wrong about something. And the whole thing was the, you know, the Hal 9000 unit is never wrong. It is a moment of hubris. It is a moment of pride and ego. And that is part of the uh, like the thing with science fiction at this point in time that's so interesting is that you and I today again look at science fiction in a very like man versus machine way and that's not how it started. It started off by saying how can we look at the idea of humanity through different scopes and this is a world Speaking of the evolutionary aspect of it, where the artificial intelligence is so good, that machine is feeling emotion. It is embarrassed because it got something wrong. It's afraid because it might get terminated. And it's fighting for its life in self-defense, you know? And therein lies another evolutionary conversation, which is, again, the idea of moving beyond your physical form in some means and what brings about a creator and, you know, Hal is man-made, but he also has apparently free thought and, and, and emotion and emotional capacity and yada, yada, yada. Um, he is human in a lot of ways. And that is really what I think that's there for because it doesn't, well, it does add good tension because the movie didn't have any real tension before that. It's the only real, um, like me versus them or me versus him part of the film, um, mm -hmm. which I think it, it needed like narratively in, in some ways just to break up the, the traveling scenes. Um, but like plot wise, it's not needed. It's, it's really there. I think to show again, this concept of what it means to be human, what it means to have evolved, what evolution looks like and, and just, kind of a general scope of humanity you know mm -hmm. i get it i definitely get it and i think you have some really good insight on that i think Hal's just a dick i thought he was just an asshole he just wanted to be left alone no no don't disagree <laughs> do not disagree <laughs> 
he saw Dave was getting close to beating him at chess, so he's like, nah, fuck this guy. Because, like, you know, it, it's so crazy, you know, Hal was like, you know, I, I don't mean to pry, but can I ask you a personal question? Like, that's no longer a computer at that point, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that's the it is, it is artificial intelligence with its own independent thought. Yeah. Yeah, you, you know, we think of artificial intelligence today as, like, talking to, like, Siri or your Google Assistant or whatever, but you know, again, this is the idea that we're so far in the future that no, like our artificial intelligence is going to like ask you how you're feeling and like have insights and want to have a better understanding of the human experience, like mm-hmm. d- deep shit like that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just want to say, you know, before we get into our final thoughts, uh, Stanley Kubrick doesn't understand physics and gravity, and it's really noticeable, and it really upset me. Oh, at what points did you uh, did you feel that? Um, so gravity is created through rotation, and the faster you rotate, the larger the mass is rotating. That is rotating. The higher the gravitational field, no, no part of that ship rotated. Yet there is still gravity everywhere. No, that ship rotated. Where? The two really big spinny parts. Uh, I'm talking more about like the the transport ships, like the one scene where oh had, like, that the guy, right, 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 right. I I I know what you mean. Um, You're thinking of like the big penis looking one, the phallic shaped one. Yeah, I think yeah. I think that got explained in the beginning with the grip shoes. Because you uh... because like even because it like remember when um when Dave is um in like the tanning bed and listening to that message from his parents. Kind of, yeah. yeah. Yeah, his parents are like, should yeah, have a yeah, birthday yeah. cake or yeah. some shit like that. If you notice, he is wearing nothing but his underwear and sneakers. And like, it, if you look at it, it's super weird looking. Wrong with that? Like, should I not be the, doing that right now? Who the, well, who the fuck goes to, a, you know, tan in underwear and their sneakers? And I think that's because he needs the shoes on to walk around. Okay, that would make way more sense because at the same time, while like all that was going on, the like after seeing like so many other movies, obviously since then and in the fifty years since then, use the rotational um, cylinder with a fixed camera on it to show like oh they're walking on walls and all this and that, like it was really noticeable. But having special shoes, all right, that makes sense. I can get behind that. Yeah, there was a there was a subtle point at that in the the first spacewalking sequence with the flight attendant or whatever. You, you have levied my concerns, sir. Ugh, excuse me. Hey, it's Kubrick, man. He he thinks everything. Um. All right, then I guess I guess shall we shall we move to to final thoughts or uh, do you have any other points? Uh, I'm good with final thoughts. All right. Um. Oh, sorry. I had one other thing. Just uh, to tie the knot a little bit on Hal, the fact that he is, um, as he's getting um, shut down, he he keeps saying, "I can feel it. I can mm-hmm. feel it." That was that was weirdly heavy, because it really made it feel like he was kind of killing somebody. Yeah. Yeah, and and to an extent, I think that was definitely 
the intention. Oh, for sure. Um, for sure. Well, I mean, obviously it was the intention. That's why they did it. Um, but I think, you know, having him be real, having him be an actual person within a computer, which I think was, you know, how they were trying to portray him and his character because of everything else involved. Um, yeah, I think that was really, really effective at, at, at getting that further across. Wholeheartedly agree. Yeah. Um, all right. So this, it's a phenomenal fucking movie because it is visually very entertaining. It, uh, plot wise has, has a very interesting plot to it. Um, and has a lot of deep meaning to it. I do find this to be a hard anytime rewatch because it has a very specific pacing to it that does not make it accessible on like, it's a Tuesday afternoon. Like I'm really craving 2001 a space odyssey like it's not that movie um and it it so you got to be in a certain uh you got to be like really in a mood for it and have a good chunk of time devoted to it that you can at least pay some type of attention to um because it's it's not quite a shut your brain off movie so but uh, on the other hand it's 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 phenomenal it does everything it's trying to do and and it does all of them, I think, really genuinely well. Um, I'm not sure what else I have to say about it uh, that we haven't already kind of touched on in terms of the, you know it, it's it's inner meanings and its philosophical nature. So I'm gonna give this I'm gonna give this the full the full bore man. I'm gonna give it the five out of five. Um, wow. Yeah, I really I really love this movie. I'm not sure it's my favorite Kubrick film, but it's like it's top three for sure, man. It is right there. It's so damn good. I just cannot, you know, comfortably say that I'm a big enough Kubrick friend to begin with to to have that kind of love. Um, but I, I, I just I cannot get over with this film the just the pace that just seems to be filled with empty shots that are meant to look visually appealing which they absolutely do and and they the shots themselves do absolutely stand the test of time i just disagree that the story is really there to support it uh to that extent i just i don't connect to the story nearly anywhere uh close to to what you do um i just i don't think it's anything special narratively outside of everything that it is visually um so i think i'm going to give this like a three and a half wow yeah it's it feels wrong to do so absolutely but i just you know it's tough all right yeah yeah all right, then uh, um, let's let's move on over, man. Let's talk about uh, the trial of the Chicago Seven. Just came out uh, this year, just a few months ago, on on Netflix. Um, it was written and directed by Aaron Sorkin, uh, starring Eddie Redmayne, Alex Sharp, and Sasha Baron Cohen. It does it. Will it show me estimated budget? It's always weird for Netflix movies. Um, no. 
And it's cumulative worldwide gross is only listed at twenty four thousand dollars. But again, it's Netflix. They're really weird about how they disclose like financial stuff. Like you'll you're never we're never gonna get a real answer out of the the Netflix movies for those types of things. Um, I also don't see a tagline here, so I'm gonna say it doesn't have that either. Um, so because we love making fun of those. We do, and because it just came out, it doesn't have any major awards, nominations, nor wins. Um, it is about the story of seven people on trial, stemming from various charges surrounding the uprising at the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago, Illinois. This is Corwin's pick, so Corwin. Tell me your thoughts. Uh, I think from the get-go, the the biggest thing, the biggest takeaway is just how unbelievably infuriating this was to watch. With everything that's going on in the world today, it seems like a film where if you took this and told me that it happened this week if this was something that happened in 2020 not only would i believe you completely but man i would just be be so i i just i could not believe how much this felt like just another oh god it's so hard to put into words just how angry i felt towards just the judicial system and how packed everything was against those that were accused and how little power they had to prove their innocence despite being innocent until proven guilty. And just the judge himself was as corrupt and as close-minded and biased as you would expect him to be. And boy, it was it was difficult to watch in any any context, uh, but especially in the context of of everything that's going on today. So, oh, this was just so hard. That's what she said. Yeah, this was um, an infuriating movie to watch. Um, led entirely because of how how well done it was and. And just how maddening the 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 story is, um, and you know it it it's so frustrating because the force behind the film is so invisible yet directly in front of you. You know the entire time they're trying to, um, the the U.S. government is trying to prosecute these people, um, for no reason other than politics. And by doing so through the quote unquote legal avenues that it has, there weren't legal, but those were the avenues. Um, it made it so that you know your systems of justice, the things that are supposed to protect you from from certain levels of tyranny and, and injustice, are actively working to take away your freedoms and doing so in such an obvious and tangible way. It was infuriating. Um, it was also exceedingly well laid out. I, I mean, getting the the contrast of character between Thomas Hayden and Abby Hoffman was so perfect. Um, Thomas Hayden, we might all know from the Port Huron statement, 
um, Abby Hoffman, whom we might all know from um, Steal This Book, the famous counterculture book. Um, and the, their associates and some other people who were arrested along with them. And, you know, getting the more free love, um, very like 60s in appearance type of dude that Abby Hoffman is with the more buttled up, buttoned up, um, you know, by the book, uh, politic kind of kind of guy that Tom Tom Hayden was really led to a very broad um, or very nuanced, but but um, you got to see a lot of sides of how the '60s were shaping out in terms of the politics of it and how it was being um, expressed. And that lent itself very handily towards this film because it's not just, you know, the more goofballish side of Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin, you know, dressing like the judge with uh, cop clothes underneath. Um, and it wasn't just the stick in the mud Tom Hayden who's playing by the rules too much for comfort. Um, it, you got to see both of it, all of which was trying to accomplish the same goals but through very different means, avenues, and interpretations. Um, man, man, there's so much to talk about with this. Yeah, I, I found it hard to even focus on the, you know, the technical and narrative, uh, like, uh, what, what's the term I'm looking for? Um, not strategies, but... Um, Techniques? Techniques, yeah, that's, that's the right word. Just because I was so enamored by the story that was unfolding and what was going on and what had happened. And, and it basically, it dragged me so deep into the film itself, I forgot I was watching a film. Um, or at least watching a film that I'm supposed to be reviewing. Which, again, I cannot hold that against it because that is its goal, you know? or at least most films, that's the goal, is to draw you in to make it feel like you're not actually watching a movie, but you're a part of it. And it, it absolutely succeeded there, whether it was trying to or not. But it probably was. Yeah, man. Um, so, I, I will say, in terms of, of uh, technical details, I think the editing of this film is fucking amazing. Mm, absolutely. Um, you know, they would, they would cut back and forth between, uh, testimony and conversation, um, to flashbacks of the actual events being discussed in just a seamless way. I mean, truly it made it very engaging. Um, cause I, I, I also have written down here in my notes that, you know, you gotta love a good court move. You know, you gotta love a good, a good court procedural, you know, every, ev everyone likes watching a few good men, you know, you're. We're all we're all here to watch people be angry in a courtroom. Everyone, we're always down for my cousin Vinny. Um, there's something um, about seeing the i you know ideas being represented, shouted and mocked in the setting of a courtroom that just is so well laid out for a script. Um, that like really getting to see it like that is just so compelling um mm. and then you tack on the 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 really 
interesting editing that they um, used for the film just really made it flow so well. Yeah, by all means, you know, it, regardless of the subject matter and the subject at hand, incredibly well done film. Um, funny enough, a uh, few good men also written by Aaron Sorkin. Uh, cause of course, I knew this Aaron Sorkin, really good filmmaker, writer, writer for filmmaking. I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure there was enough walking talks in this. He, uh, did you, did you see that he reused a joke from the West Wing? I, I haven't watched the West Wing in any depth, so no. Oh, um. Do you know why they only eat one egg for breakfast in Canada? Oh, because of it's it's a uh, it sound like an oof, some shit like that. It's it's enough. One egg's enough. I I hate that joke. Yeah, it's not good, and it took me years to get it. And once I got it, I was like, really? That's it? That's it's a terrible joke. It's it's, it's, it's a terrible joke. Um, I mean, to be fair, the both characters and both circumstances that say it are not meant to be funny or you know charming in any way, and I can absolutely appreciate that context of it. Yeah, I guess that's something. Yeah. Um, all right. So I'm trying to think about what's a good starting place for this. <sighs> Um, so the basic, so let me, I guess let's lay out the film a little bit. Basic idea here is in 1968, Richard Nixon was elected president. Yeah. Again. No, first time. Yep. First time. Sorry, folks. First time. Um, which is a shift from the Democrat party to the Republican party in terms of who was in office. Um, and we're also in the midst of the Vietnam War, which is a massively unpopular war um, started by the Democrats. So here we are um, at the DNC with a bunch of different groups all coming together to protest this thing. Um, again, at the DNC, because it is it is Lyndon B. Johnson's war at this point. Uh, it has not yet been expanded under under Nixon uh, to to raise their voice and speak out against it. Um, Nixon then wins the election and his attorney general wants to make a statement by trying some of the leaders of the various groups that came to Washington to protest, um, for conspiracy to commit civil unrest or something like that. Um, some, some trumped up charge. Uh, it, again, very political in nature. It, it lets it be, and it lets that be known, like very much so from the beginning. Hires Joseph Gordon-Levitt to be his attorney, um, and proceedings begin with the Chicago Seven, which is comprised of, and this is these are all real people. This is all, you know, very much so real to a large extent. Um, so our Chicago Seven is. Um, uh, Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, Tom Hayden, Rennie Davis, David Dellinger, uh, Lee Weiner, John Froin, Froines, I don't know, um, and Bobby Seale. Uh, oh, you're right. It is eight. Oh, because Bobby Seale wasn't one of them. That was the point. Well, he was. He was 
great. What? In the mistrial. And then it was downgraded from the Chicago 8 to the Chicago 7. It was referred to as the Chicago 8 originally. And because of that, because he was granted um, a mistrial and was removed from the trial, they changed the name in use from the Chicago 8 to the Chicago 7. Ah, I see. That makes sense. Um, so, uh, you know, they're, they're going throughout the case, um, having to navigate a very hostile judge who is a racist old white man. Prayed by Fra- Frank Langella, though. Go Frank. Love Frank. Um, who we saw play Richard Nixon previously in Frost Nixon. Um, yeah. I never yeah. made that connection either. Man, I'm bad at watching movies. Frank Langella is the man, man. Jersey natives shouts to Bayonne. Um, anyway, love for Jersey aside, um, he did a great job being a racist old white dude. Yeah. Oh my God. Just everything about him and his character just was unreal. <laughs> I know. Um, all right. Let's uh, let's talk about Bobby Seale first, I guess, since his part was not very large in the film in terms of plot. It was a one-note act in a lot of ways, even though that one note was insanely serious um, for good reason and was highlighted for that reason. Um, and that is that he was detained and tried for much the same reason as the others um, in that he was a guy who was there um, who had some connections to groups that were protesting, but his was a lot slimmer in that he was not an organizer of anything. He apparently, I think they had said in the movie and I believe I'd read later on that he was only in Chicago for like four hours before he was arrested. So not even enough time for him to really get into any trouble. Um, And so he was mainly tried because he was black and had ties to um, the Black Panther Party. Yeah. And that's Sorry for interrupting it. your Black Panther Party. That's really all he was there. That's all they had. That He was a black guy in Chicago. Not even from Chicago. Just a black guy who was in Chicago. Um, and was a part of the Black Panther Party. Um, he had a lawyer who was, um, I think they said like recovering from surgery or something back in Oakland, but couldn't make it out. And they just refused to wait until he had counsel. Um, and that is a whole other big part of the movie that I think that is really shows the complete lack of agency awarded to, to black people. Um, cause the judge kept just dismissing it as being like, well, just, you know, you're, you're sitting right next to a judge or right next to a, a lawyer. Let that guy be yeah. your lawyer. And Fred and uh, Fred Hampton, um, and, and Bobby Seale kept going like that. Man, it's not my goddamn lawyer. Like I want my lawyer, and and because well, he was, is basically what the judge was saying is, you're not a person. You don't matter. You'll take whatever is around you, and you'll like it, right? <sighs> yes. God, it's just it. It's I'm trying to still find the words. To be able to to voice my displeasures with how all this took place, 
obviously it being the reality of our world and our country in 1968. Um, but just the, the blatant disregard for the laws that you don't want to apply to certain individuals um, in order to make your own rea- your own choice of reality a reality. Oh, God. It's just... It's too much. It is almost too much to talk about because I I just don't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and this 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 is such a perfect demonstration of what Jim Crow basically was to 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 certain, you know, to to this particular sector of American society, because, again, Part of the idea of systemic racism, and granted, Frank Langella in this movie is directly racist, but part of the idea of it is that there are racist policies as a result of people who didn't like black people before Reconstruction still not liking black people after Reconstruction and having the ability to make laws, regulations, and societal norms based around, fuck the blacks. That was how they wanted to build Mm -hmm. society. And Frank Langella, I guess to some extent, since nothing got stopped, was able to operate under his own guise as a racist dude, not giving agency to this black person, not giving a fuck about him as a human being, seeing him as being that thing that's going to take the punishment I give him for no reason other than I'm giving it to him and he's black. That's it. And that is the core idea behind systemic racism because what the hell is Bobby Seale supposed to do? Literally, all he did for the whole movie is say, I don't have a lawyer. You're not supposed to be able to start until I have my lawyer. Let me have my fucking lawyer. And the judge keeps saying no. Go fuck yourself. I don't care. And that's that, you know, and I, I don't want to get, you know, too broad with, with the thing, but like, this is the same idea behind redlining. This is the idea behind making it more expensive for black people to like get leases on cars or, or, or um, loans for cars or mortgages or, or building wealth via, via property. Yeah, it, it's all of it. It's all of it. And, and this is, this is just one slice of it that they put on display and it's maddening. It's absolutely maddening. That we've come 50 years. This took place in 68, right? The same year that 2001 came out. I'm not yes, mixing 2001 Space up. Odyssey is directly responsible for this movie. <laughs> well, we can't know that for certain. Um, I'm actually, the idea that I believe it, the, the DNC was in 68. I think this movie takes place in 69. Regardless. Um, you know, too small of a difference to matter for argument's sake. Sure. Uh, just the idea that 50 years has now gone by and nothing has changed. What progress have we made? You know, what have we done to right these wrongs that the society that we've created has built for these groups of people? What have we done to fix this? 
Anything? You 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 like to think that you know if you get the I hate to keep using Frank Langella because he's actually a very nice man. What was his character's name? Judge Hoffman. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you so you like to think you know if you get all the Judge Hoffmans out of the out of society, you let them them all die off, everything will be fine. But the problem is these ideas are um, inherited. You know, they're passed down, and and you, you can't just weed that out successfully. That's why that's why there is a greater conversation happening about the concepts of systemic racism, because even though people aren't out here acting quite like Frank Langella or Judge Hoffman in such an obvious way, these practices are still very much so in play. And also, just because the clothes are different doesn't mean this is a very long time ago, because Bobby Seal is still alive. Like, Like, a lot of these guys are still kicking, man. It it might seem like a long time ago because their clothes sure are different, but like no, these people are still around. It nah, it's just wild. Um, and it was such a trip seeing seeing Fred Hampton in this movie. Um, for anyone who doesn't know who Fred Hampton is, I implore you to look him up. He was an icon of the civil rights movement. Um, and I actually I I knew he was assassinated by the police i didn't realize it was during the trial so when he mm-hmm. when he came on screen you know i was watching this with my girlfriend and i point to kel and i was like all right i looked at kel and i pointed at the screen like this is one of like the icons of civil rights like this guy did a ton of, of great work in chicago with with um surrounding gang violence and, and, and uh organizing nc naacp chapters and like a ton of really good stuff um, but he he ended up getting a, like killed by the by the police, and when it when we got to be December of 1969, I was like, oh fuck, I, I, oh my god, it was heartbreaking. It was so heartbreaking because you see him in this movie being like a good dude because he was a really great guy. People have this concept of the Black Panthers being super scary motherfuckers, and some of them were to you know. Keep, get an understanding that stop fucking with the black community, but a lot of these, a lot you of the had black to be Panthers, in order to survive in that environment, you know, right? And it was more of a "don't fuck with us" than it was a "we're coming for you" thing. That's never what the Panthers were about. A lot of it was about we're going to clean up our own streets because we don't trust the police, and that was a concept that got Fred Hampton killed by the police, like. Seeing him in this film, even in the small way he was there in the beginning, and then the emotional impact you see of his death later on, having just having that name in the movie um, as part of the story really felt powerful. Yeah. Um, I really hope at some point during our lifetime we are able to see this country not necessarily as a whole, but there be a a significant just sharing or realization that we have done some pretty awful things to our people, whether it be assassinations of leaders in the civil rights movement, whether it 
<coughs> excuse me, whether it be the purposeful marginalization of citizens, whether it be any of the countless atrocities we've committed to our own people and people all over the world for the sake of it's easier for us or we come out ahead or that's a good deal for us, this, that, or anything. I think I would be truly upset if I were to, to, you know, leave this world, not having that occur, not having that country fruition. And I don't know how confident I am that it will happen, but it is a pipe dream. Oh, well, you know, that that's the real thing that's stopping one of the very first steps that should be taken uh, from being taken, which is reparations, because no no one in government wants to say, hey, you know, I'm not ready to take any responsibility for my generation's shit. But, you know, the generation two, you know, two, three generations before me really fucked over the black community. Let's start off with reparations because we said we would do that as part of reconstruction and then just never fucking did. Um, and that unwillingness to take responsibility from a governmental role, not even a personal role, is astonishing. Um, you know, you don't have to. No one expects like Nancy Pelosi to be like, yes, slavery was my fault. Um, or reconstruction was my fault. But at the same time, you are acting as a voice of government, and the government did these things. So you should use the power of the government to correct the behaviors of previous administrations, since it's all the same offices. But again, will any of that ever happen? Ugh. It's who's to say. Ugh. Uh, also, Corwin and I are the whites. If we get anything wrong, um, it please have the understanding that we are limited in our capability to discuss many of these things based on our limited uh, worldview and world experiences. So feel free to correct us on anything. We are more than willing to be receptive towards any and all criticism, cr- critiques, and uh, and uh, comments. Uh, yeah, anyway, disclaimer being said. Ah. Uh, that as a as a constant undertone not only reminds you of all of the other horrors cuz cuz a lot of the Abby Hoffman Tom Hayden headbutting is very much so about external US drama you know it's very much so Vietnam and what we're doing over there is fucked up and so the Bobby Seal story really brings you back in and says hold on not only are we fucking over those people over there, we're also fucking up these people over here. So it makes it a very effective through line um, to kind of underscore the true scope of how the U.S. is fucked. But I, I, I guess to pivot it over to talk a little bit about Abby Hoffman and um, Tom Hayden, did you have a preference in? the type of people those were like if you were if you were amongst the the crowd do you know who would be your guy 
Yeah, uh, I think I would very much be in a, a Tom Hayden camp if I was, you know, in these kind of groups just because, you know, while sex, drugs, and rock and roll is is a fun way to protest, I don't think in any capacity would it be the most effective way to protest. Um, I mean, I think Abby Kaufman is very clearly shown as being someone who is wildly intelligent beyond what you would expect him to be and incredibly effective at not only voicing the injustices that he's trying to fix, but in also the ways that that can be done. I just don't necessarily think the movement that he was the leader of was or is the most effective at change at a political level. Whereas I think Tom Hayden realized that regardless of how much the government that they operated under sucked, to say it in the most kind way possible, there really wasn't going to be the kind of cultural revolution that the Hoffman, Abby Hoffman was hoping for. And that change needed to come through legislation. Um, and I think that's still a camp that I'm in, despite the need for the cultural revolution to force the legislative legislative reform. Um, a cultural revolution on its own isn't going to push that. I think the more important factor is actually making it a law and not just a empty show of faith or what have you um, that it would usually end up being. I, uh, I I would firmly put myself on the Abby Hoffman side of things. Okay. Um, because, I, yeah, I'm yeah I'm <laughs> I'm working on it. Um, I think first of all, as I said previously, the two characters complement each other very well. Um, and again, it feels a little bit silly to call them characters. These were people, but. It's a movie, so we're using movie terms. Um, I think they complement each other very well because you get, you know, two sides of the same coin in terms of what the cause is, but versus what the means are. And I think part of the problem of Thomas Hayden's approach is made very clear in the film that you want to participate in a system. That is here to fuck you. Tom Tom Hayden prepared diligently for this trial and couldn't even be brought to testify because the system was here to fuck him. That is also a big part of the movie. Yeah. That you can aim to participate as much as you want just because you participate doesn't mean you're doing anything. And I think that's what Abby Hoffman's there to show, is that he's right. Ultimately, government is going to be, you know, Abby Hoffman can't sex drugs and rock, his roll, rock and roll the troops out of Vietnam. That literally must be done by the government. But the cultural revolution that Abby Hoffman very much so was the face of was a really big part as to what ended up bringing down the war. It was massively unpopular. And 
led to a very big conflict between the government and its people, veterans and its people, and veterans affairs, everything. I mean, I'm not here to justify the ways that the Vietnam um, veterans were treated upon their return from overseas because they were treated excruciatingly poorly Mm -hmm. as a result of their government's behavior and by no fault of their own to certain extents, um, war crimes to the side. Um, But the cultural revolution showing that we're not going to just participate and play nice while you do fucked up biz and expect us to just participate in your fucked up system where you control the strings and that we are going to lead a revolution in front of you, I think has a lot of merit. I'm not sure I would be Abby Hoffman, but I think part of the other charm of it is that, maybe not charm, but but power of it, is the idea of structure versus anarchy by means of, um, what's the best way to put this? I don't know, like the, the the group. So like Thomas Hayden, very organized. You know, here is why. Like in the beginning, it shows. Here is why we are going to Chicago. This is what we are going to accomplish. These are our goals. These are where we're going. This is where we'll be. Yada yada yada. Abby Hoffman, I'm going to Chicago. These people followed me. We're gonna we're gonna do like a uh some some bands and shit. And y'all come if you wanna. And then like ten thousand people showed up. Not because he did any planning or anything, but because he brought out of people that feeling, that emotion, that understanding of what was happening. And here is your civil unrest way of doing it. And I think that has a lot of value because there is an intelligence behind it that is more than just the empty headedness of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It's the understanding of putting certain things in front of people putting your displeasure in front of people in whatever form that takes means something. Because we see Abby Hoffman as being a smart guy. I mean, later on in the film, like he really starts to showcase it. But um, yeah, I think there's a lot more there. I agree. I just, you know, again, it comes down to I guess the the horse that they choose to ride on and the the platform they speak on. Well, no, I guess the platform is the same. It is just the the way in which they are sharing that message. Right. I get it. I get it. Um I know. I had a fucking question I was gonna ask you, son of a bitch. Fucking hell. Can't think of it. Son of a fucking bitch. Um, did you start to hate Tom Hayden halfway through the movie? No. No, you didn't you didn't you didn't hate him when he stood up to for the judge? No, because I could definitely relate to that's the kind of shit that I would have done. All the uh, and then just simply standing up after doing that for six months. Yeah, I probably would have fucked that up, too. Yeah. I don't know. I was, I was, I was really mad during that scene. I don't blame you. Yeah. At all. I'm just saying that's... I'd pull that shit. I was, like, shouting at my TV, like, sit the fuck down, Tom. 
The the hesitation definitely didn't help. <laughs> no, no, it did not. He was he looked confused. Like he's like, why are y'all looking at me funny? Um, you know why, Tom? Sit the fuck on down. Um, what did you think of Joseph Gordon Levitt in this film? It was weird. It was one of those things where you could tell his character was meant to be the the government guy who's who wants to be on their side, but he has his job to do and he's going to do it. And at the same time, like it, at no point was I like, oh yeah, he's on their side. It, I don't. It was just weird all around. He just felt so out of place the entire time. See, that's the thing. I'm not sure he ever wanted to be on their side. I no. and, and I found his, I'll, you know, quote unquote redemption at the end, where he stands up for the names of the victims, to be so hollow. Um, because he could have grown a spine and stood up for moral integrity at any point in the film. And at the only point where he shows a modicum of moral integrity is when they bound and gagged Bobby Seal and he asked for a mistrial. That was it. And he knew, based on his early conversation with the Attorney General, from the beginning, that this is all bullshit and this is all political theater and that he's doing this to advance his career. That was the conversation at the beginning of the movie. And whether, he, you know, his heart was fully in it or not, functionally speaking, doesn't fucking matter at all. And that makes me not give two shits if you come around to, to the symbolic gesture at the end before these dudes conceivably went to prison for five years. It, you're forgetting the fact that he's a federal prosecutor in charge of this case. Like his entire career is focused on being a federal prosecutor, where there is no moral ambiguity when you are defending the law as a representative of the U.S. government. The law is the law. You argue the law, and you don't involve emotions or personal feelings with it. I'm sure you can recuse yourself from a case if you truly feel that strongly. I don't think six months into a case would be, you know, the best time to do that in any situation. And I don't think he would be allowed to recuse himself from the case at that point. I... I think on a personal level, absolutely, you know, standing up at, you know, the last 50 feet of the marathon and saying, ah, that's when you show your support. Like, yeah, absolutely. That would be an empty gesture if it wasn't for the fact that he was the prosecuting attorney in the case. But he didn't have to be. What do you mean? It's not like... like you should have turned down the case before it even started because there was a chance that these guys were innocent and this case would be mishandled. But what I'm saying is the case wasn't even mishandled. Joseph Gordon-Levitt, at the beginning when he meets with the attorney general, talks about how this case is bullshit. 
And it was it was bullshit for all of the reasons at the beginning of the movie that Joseph Gordon-Levin mentions. And it was bullshit for all the same reasons the whole way through. I think the bullshit... At no point did his case get any stronger. I think the bullshit is ramped up dramatically through the actual outcome of the... Tri- not the outcome, but the the what goes on during the trial. I think the bullshit of basically doing this because of political clout and basically, um, what's the term, like revenge because the guy pissed you off. Yeah, sure. That's bullshit. But at the same time, as a prosecutor at the federal level being handed a case of this magnitude, that's not up for you to decide. It's these eight men are being accused of a federal crime. You are the prosecutor in charge of the case. That is your job. Go do it. I I am sorry. I refuse to accept the I'm just following orders argument here. I mean, he... This isn't Nazi Germany. You wouldn't have to gas people in. I'm not saying anything about it like that, but I'm saying just because you got told to do your job doesn't mean you have to do it if you morally disagree with it. And not only that, but it's tough to say he was just doing his job because he got told to do it when the previous attorney general is here to tell you what really is happening with this case and you tell him to shut up. And have his Again, testimony in far dearer. Months like, and months into the trial. But at that's some not- point, don't you think that a federal prosecutor should have morals? That he should have the ability to understand the law, not just by what is being told to you by the attorney general, but by how, but by how it's actually supposed to be implemented. This was a political pro- trial from the beginning as stated basically by the attorney general that told Joseph Gordon-Levitt to do it, and he went along with it anyway, purely for selfish reasons, to further his career. And yeah, six months in, if six, if, six months in, if six months into any job, you found out that it was kind of fucked up, it's not too late. Get the fuck out of there. Leave. It's not too late, but it would be career suicide but fuck that dude's career some (laughs) things matter more man you can't just fuck people over as well as i do that i agree with you that there are certain moral standards that are above anything else you know that as well as i do i ended a relationship based off of moral values but there's a time and a place for those things to be utilized and resigning from a case basically days before the final verdict is being met isn't going to change the outcome of the trial. And I don't think there should be that expectation for you to end your career as a 33-year-old attorney because of the way the U.S. government is trying to mishandle the case. Yes, at a moral level, at the absolute bare bones, you should absolutely be above that but i don't necessarily think that it is up to the prosecuting attorney to take that matters into his own hands i think you are asking this very particular case to be above all moral ambiguity and be 
solely a idealistic decision uh, when the reality of the situation needs to be brought into consideration. I, I'm trying to tell you that's what I'm doing. What? I, I, I hate to bring up modern politics because we usually do such a good job of avoiding it. But let's take the, the, the charges that you know Bill Barr is trying to throw at um, protesters, trying to basically do the same thing with them. You see all the people quitting the Department of Justice for this reason? Absolutely. That's what this guy should have done. He didn't have to do this. Yeah, at 33 or whatever, it might have fucked with his career. Go back into private practice. If he never took up this case, no one would have to know about it. It's the 60s. Who finds out this shit? Go somewhere else. Or use it as a selling point. I left a job because I have the moral integrity of someone who believes in the law for everyone. And that was not being represented in this in this decision. We see people leaving the actual Department of Justice for this reason a lot in recent months. That they're being asked to apply the law in unethical ways that go beyond the scope of the law. That's what this guy should have done. And standing okay. up for the names I, of the all at the end. Is I can bullshit. see my point. I agree completely. Yeah. And it's why I like. I hate that they gave him that moment at the end because he really did deserve it. Oh, you know, if, if we're going to talk about the ending, I'm ready to tear into this ending because I fucking hated it. Oh, tell me. I want I give it to me, baby. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. <laughs> I, I do not know what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I don't know what's happening. Alright. Alright, I'm back. Okay. I think I saw what I may or may not have been a cockroach crawling across my TV and I just oh. in this room tonight. Ugh. That was real life. Oh no. Yes, Pennsylvania wood cockroach. Fuck. Ugh. God, fuck. Alright, let's talk about this so I could not t think about sleeping in my room tonight. All right, tell me, tell me your your thoughts on the ending. I think that after watching this movie for two and a half hours, 
the fact that the ending is a celebratory, inspirational, and everybody lived happily ever after, even though they didn't, like, standing up and clapping. You know what? I, I wrote out a whole paragraph. I'm just going to fucking read straight from it. Do do it. I truly hated the ending of this film. Everyone stands up and claps. Inspirational music. Crooked judge is flustered and is unable to just get any control over his courtroom. The evil prosecutor storms out of the room. The understanding and internally torn prosecutor stands with the defendants. A small child stands in the crowd with support and hope, or stands in support in the crowd with hope and inspiration in his eyes. And it's just directly contradictory to the entirety of the rest of the film and the message that it carries. And I, there's no happy ending. There is no justice and victory. The judge who directly and indirectly chose the fate of these seven men, whose fate should have been decided by an unbiased jury of their peers, was deemed unqualified by 78% of his own peers and still possessed the power of supreme justice in this case. People continue to die today at the hands of police and in combat in wars we should not be in, against people that just want us to let them choose their own fate, their own democracy, and their own way through life. And there's been no progress. These men were not given fair justice. The U.S. government still oppresses its people with violence and twisting of the law in their own favor. I just hate that we are meant to be inspired by the outcome of this uh trial and the ending when the progress they fought for has been stifled over the past 50 years since this took place because the people in power have spent trillions of dollars to convince millions of Americans to look down on those who fight for that progress because they are the enemy to the American dream and their way of life. I just, I hate this ending because it's a farce, it's a lie, and there just is nothing to be inspired excuse me, inspired by when it comes to our judicial system. I, yeah, I, I'm, I am with you. And I'm going to add on to it by saying, for one thing, it's also fucking ridiculous that these people are going to be clapping for what, all 4,500 names? Yeah. And that Frank Langella is going to be banging his gavel and asking them to stop for the next three hours? Like, that's ludicrous. Also, these people are ostensibly clapping for dead soldiers. That's yeah. morose. Mm-hmm. That's and 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 it, you're right that it also you know it flies in the face of what we're witnessing. These people are very much so still going to jail. Again, this case later gets thrown out upon appeal. Yada yada yada. But at the time. These seven people are going to federal prison and everyone in the room is clapping because they are and doing a minor act of defiance by reading out the names of dead soldiers. That is a fucked up way to end this movie. That is not a happy moment. No part of that should be uplifting. These are seven men who are going to jail 
and are reading out the names of people who died in combat during the days of the trial as a way to remember those fallen for the thing that they were protesting. It is not a happy moment. Nope. Presenting it as such is kind of fucked up. Yeah, I got no, I got no joy out of it either. I found it to be such a bizarre way to end this movie. A movie that is so based in realism, just tossing out the window in the final moments. I just, I, mm-hmm. I get it. I get that it's Aaron Sorkin, and he of all people is known for. This he is the everybody claps guy. Yeah, and I just I don't know how you could watch the first ninety nine percent of this film, and come up with that as your closing piece as that summation it's just so out of place and it just feels wrong to have that be the way you end it like nothing happened or or like everything was okay i know i know it's maddening i don't know so- I, this movie just made me very sad it did it did and um I guess before we, we, we move towards the, the um, final stages of this, um, what was what was the main takeaway of it for you? Um, how easily the judicial system is corrupted and how easy it is for someone to get their thumb on the scale and change the outcome of of someone's fate with just no actual reasoning behind it in the law like how just how easy it is for someone to to have their entire life ruined because of the systematic racism or prejudices of the justice system yeah, I think I'm going to echo you a lot in that. Because, um, you know, for me, you know, I think it informed a lot about the, the counterculture movement and, you know, like what guys like Abby Hoffman stood for and yada, yada, yada. But one of the big takeaways is, is again, something that we see in, we're seeing in modern politics right now. And again, I, I don't want to get too much into it. But like, you know, you look at what Trump does or what another high ranking official does and you go, can he just do that? No one's going to like stop him. There's not rules. And that was this movie under a microscope. Because at least when you see that like on the news, you go like, oh, well, I'm sure someone's working behind the scenes to like do something about that. And we just don't see that part of it. You know, you'll, you'll lie to yourself in that way. You can't do that with this. This guy, I mean, he's throwing out sympathetic looking jurors. He is disregarding testimony from a former former attorney general. He's doing everything fucked up he possibly can. He threw threw the black guy in contempt because he said he wanted a lawyer and he didn't want to give him one. I mean, he he literally just did whatever the hell he wanted, completely unchecked. Mm-hmm. And you know, I y- you think in your mind that someone can't just do that because there's rules. And this movie really shows you that if that guy doesn't care about the rules, then there are no rules. And how 
horrifying that is. Mm -hmm. It goes to show how much power federal judges hold and the importance of court packing. You know, not to bring it back to, to present day politics, but it's the checks and balances in this country are no longer effective. Um, and, you know, the fact that one man has this kind of power to just skirt around the law, you know, control what information is presented to a jury despite sworn testimony being given. It, it's just, ugh, it's just gut-wrenching to watch happen in, in front of you. It, it's it's heartbreaking. I, dude, I, I need, I like walked outside after this movie. Like I needed like a break. Like I, I was so fucking mad, you know? Yeah. Which I, I mean, I did, I did the exact same thing. You know, I guess that's a testament to the film. I mean, it really accomplishes its goal outside of that last like three minutes. Um, but oh man, I was so fucking mad after watching this. Absolutely. Uh, do you have any other uh, notes or shall we head towards ratings and review? Uh, let me double check. I might have. Um, nope. All right. This was uh, your film, so you start. Uh, I mean, I think everything that uh, that was said is quite fitting for, you know, a, sum a summary of this film. You know, technically speaking, I, I don't have any complaints. I also can't say that I was able to focus on any of those specifically just because of the fact that I was just so drawn into every other aspect of this. You know, um, it's it's story is incredibly moving and draws you in and brings out all the raw emotion you would expect to inspect to feel uh, when you're a part of this. And, you know, despite the ending being what it is, I think it's, excuse me, an incredibly powerful movie. Um, I'll give it a, a four. Four. That was a not very confident four, but I'm giving it a four. I'm 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 right there with you. I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a touch above to a four and a half. Um, I think what it does, it does very very well. The ending is obviously a major drawback, um, but this is also a great jumping off point for a lot of areas that it touches. You know, if you were watching this movie and you go, "Who is Abby Hoffman?" This could be a good introduction for you to Abby Hoffman, where you can go read "Steal This Book" or um, "Revolution for the Hell of It." Um, if you're like, who is Tom Hayden? That's a good, that's a good way to segue you into the poor Huron statement. Um, or if, if you don't know who Fred Hampton is, this is a good way for you to go and start looking up some more information on Fred Hampton. It's a, it's a great visualization for systemic racism, um, and, and direct racism, uh, for police brutality and, and, and police violence. Like there, there's a lot in here that is very appropriate, um, are appropriately or accurately uh, portrayed um, and has done so in a very real feeling and cinematic, but not over the top nature that I think plays itself very well here. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to give it that four and a half. I'm not going to, if, if you end up watching it, which I think Corn and I are both going to strongly recommend. I think you'll also find that this is not a movie you're going to watch a lot of. 
um, like many more rewatches. At least that's my feeling on it. Only because I don't want to be that mad all the time. Um, Absolutely. But this really, I, I mean, it really struck me. I, it re- really, it really sat with me. And so, um, I'm not going to go all the way on it, but I'm going to sit there at my four and a half and feel pretty good about it. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Uh, you have uh, movies picked for next week? Because I forgot. Actually, no, I did pick one. <laughs> oh, what do you got, buddy? Uh, I will be picking a foreign language film this week. Wow. I know. I will be picking Letters from Iwo Jima. Oh, great movie. All right. Letters from Iwo Jima. Cool stuff. Um, all right. I am going to pick the other movie you hadn't seen. I wanted to show you that I thought I showed you. Now, oh, now I'm doubting myself because maybe we shouldn't do two foreign language films in the same week. That might be a little bit much for you to handle. <laughs> I don't want you to have to go through all that. Um, all right, then I'm going to make a harsh pivot over and. I'm gonna go. Hmm. I'm gonna go. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. Ooh. Okay. Haven't watched it in a while. I'm overdue. I agree. It's been a long time for me. Yeah, I think I think we'll have fun with that one too. I think there's gonna be a lot of good stuff to get into with that. I'm excited to see Martini and Chief again. It's been a while. Yeah. You can't get too much Danny DeVito. Oh God, no. I don't, no. yeah, I don't know if that's ever been something that's been said before. Oh, hey, there's too much Danny DeVito here. Oh, man, you guys want to watch season the nine of, of, of It's Always Sunny right after all the other seasons? And it's like, oh, man, that's a lot of Danny DeVito. I don't know if I can handle that much Danny DeVito. You can always handle more Danny DeVito. Danny DeVito is like cheese. As long as we don't start watching Matilda. I don't like Matilda. Oh, my uh. God. I haven't seen it since I was a kid, and I never felt a need to rewatch it. So I'm going to say take that for what it, whatever it's worth. <laughs> yeah, okay. I think that's I think that's all there is to say. Um, all I right. Agree. So 2006's Letters from Iwo Jima and uh, 1975's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Um, them's the breaks. That's the films. Uh, check them out before we talk about them next week. If you uh, if you uh, like the discussion from this week or got anything you, know, you want to add on or give us shit about you can hit us up via um, our email address at uh, juicingthebigscreen at gmail.com if you want to hit us up via Twitter you can do so at bigscreenjuice on Twitter and until next week y'all have a good one bye